0: Hello, Dad.
1: Hello. Hey there. Hey, Ryan. Hello, how, over
0: there. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Good,
1: thanks. Good. Doing well. Awesome. Starting to get a little busy, you know. I mean, we're still in the middle of this COVID-19 where we're into virtual courtrooms. So it's a little, little different. Matter of fact, it's a lot different. But we're working through it. You know, I'm, at, I'm working remotely now and dealing with courts telephonically. and, And I'm learning. I'm learning. Cool. I'm learning. You're
0: learning a lot. I'm learning
1: a lot and later in my career. I'm learning a lot.
0: Good stuff. It's always good to learn to learn new things. Yes later it is. In life.
1: Yes it is. It's Great. very good. And and doing this is learning a lot too. Yeah, yeah
0: of course. Well, I'm happy to teach.
1: <laughs> and I'm happy to learn.
0: Great. So this is gonna work out, I think. Oh, I hope this so. partnership here. <laughs> All right, so today. We're going to be talking about a really interesting case i find it particularly interesting there's a lot of layers to it it's really fascinating to me and i'm excited to hear more about it and learn about it because it is an insanity defense case yes
1: you don't see too many of them and you don't see ones that really are a, a good case for the insanity defense so i think our listeners will like this
0: yeah Well. We'll find out, I'm sure. <laughs> the analytics don't lie, people. Th- that's true. So, this case involves a young gentleman by the name of Thomas Junta and a woman, Lisa Zering. So, first, I want to start by talking about Thomas Junta. Who was he, and what is his background?
1: Well, Thomas Junta was a patient at uh, Marlboro Psychiatric Hospital, he was there from like August of 1984 until January of 1985. But his true history is one that dates back to his infant days where his adoptive parents, the Juntas, noticed that he was developmentally delayed. He wasn't really speaking well until he was four. His early education, his teachers diagnosed him as having some difficulties in school. And then as he went into his adolescent years, there were incidents of outbursts and violence where ultimately he had a long history of being in and out of treatment facilities residential treatment facilities dealing with various diagnoses of developmental disorders schizophrenia and a host of issues which really manifested when he was released from Marlboro Psychiatric Hospital was 22 years old to a transition facility known as the Pathways Program. It's really was an unstructured psychosocial rehabilitation so you not only maybe once a week met with a counselor, but you would also interact with other patients in this facility. And that's where he met the victim in this case, Lisa Zering. And the two of them then transitioned into this facility at uh, Country Club Apartments in Eatontown, New Jersey. And that was more uh, close to an independent living rather than any structure to their psychiatric treatment.
0: Okay, so who is Lisa Zaring? Let's talk about her. What's her background? Well, Lisa
1: Zaring, she was a couple years older than Thomas Junta. I think she was 25. He was 22. And they met at Marlborough. Obviously, she had issues as well with her mental health. But both of them had uh, very supportive families. Lisa Zering's family was supportive of her and And at this facility at the Country Club Apartments, each one of them had roommates. So they were developing having a social existence. And Thomas Junta had described her to some of his friends as his girlfriend.
0: Mm -hmm. There's nothing like a psychiatric meet-cute, I mean.
1: (laughs) Well, I think their intent was to introduce them socially because... Even throughout, I think, both of their histories, they were isolated as part of their psychiatric problems. And there was an attempt to bring people together in order to assimilate them back into a, the social settings in society. Well, I in mean, society.
0: psychiatric patients deserve love, too. You know?
1: They right. deserve it the most. Right. And they need to uh, feel companionship and comfort and uh, the emotional things that we all feel when we meet people that we like.
0: hmm Okay, so they meet at the Marlboro Psychiatric Hospital, which, real quick, if you don't know a lot about the Marlboro Psychiatric Hospital, I strongly recommend you look into it. It has quite a sinister history when I was looking into it. There's a lot of records of patient mistreatment and patient abuse. So just a quick tidbit if you want to look well, m- more yeah, into it.
1: Yeah, yeah, and when you look into it, my Marlboro Psychiatric Hospital was a sprawling facility in Marlborough Township, New Jersey, and it was there for years because in the system in New Jersey when people were diagnosed with psychiatric issues, they were sent to state hospitals, and this was one of the state hospitals, and you're right, significant allegations involving mistreatment of patients there, and patients escaping from there, and terrorizing the neighbor surrounding community, so it did have a uh, quite a history here in Monmouth County.
0: Yeah, and not only that, I know after it closed down, I mean, it's still somewhat monitored by people, because a lot of kids that I knew actually would go there and break into the hospital i've heard some crazy stories of people like doing dares where they go into the morgue and get put into one of those things what are they called <laughs>
1: right what where they put the cadavers the dead bodies yes. yeah
0: they yeah. What, whatever those slots are i've heard people doing like dares where they go in there for an extended period of time see how long they can last and, in there and
1: these were your friends
0: people i know yeah <laughs> <laughs> well.
1: Well, very good. Yeah, yeah. but it did it did have a history, and glad... I never
0: did it because. Oh, thank you. I'm glad. Yes. I'm glad
1: I was never called by someone to no, say I, that you were there.
0: I think that's a little too far. I'm all for like doing a drive by, but I don't think I could actually take the steps of to going into an abandoned oh. psychiatric facility. I think that's where I draw the line.
1: All right. Well, I'm I'm, I'm happy for that.
0: Yes. So they are moved into this pathways semi independent apartment living situation. And this is where the murder ultimately takes place, where Thomas Junta murders Lisa Zaring. So I sort of just want to go into um, he has a confession. So I'm going to kind of read that. And that will kind of take us into the mindset that Thomas Junta was in when he committed the murder. Right,
1: And be mindful that the homicide occurred. Only 12 days after he was released oh, wow. from the Marlborough Psychiatric Hospital. That was Hospital. quick.
0: So their relationship was generally, it seemed pretty quick.
1: I mean, the relationship started at Marlborough, but it really wasn't a, a long standing relationship. It mm-hmm. happened fairly quickly.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. So here's a little bit from Thomas Junta's murder confession Lisa and I were together on Saturday at my apartment. She slept over Saturday night. Slept in the same room. Lisa went to bed about 7.30. I stayed up to watch some television. I went to bed about 9 p.m. We started off in separate beds. She was in the left bed. I was in the right bed. Sometime during the night, she got into bed with me. When she got into bed, she asked what time it was. I told her it was about 5 a.m. I tried to go back to sleep, but I couldn't. Just prior to her getting into bed with me, I was dreaming about Lisa getting killed in the apartment, in the bedroom, with a knife. We both got up and she told me about a dream she had about George threatening her. I did not tell her about my dream. So, he has this dream about Lisa dying in the apartment with a knife. She has this dream about a George person who is threatening her. Who is George and is he even a real person?
1: George is a real person and he was also a friend of Thomas Junta. And he was also involved with the Pathways program he had a girlfriend who uh, was contemplating suicide and he related that to Thomas Junta maybe a day or so before. I think they were out drinking together on February 2nd, which is the day before the homicide, which is February 3rd, 1985. And so George was a real person. But what I think happened is that what Thomas did, Junta, was to then create this fictional character who was threatening or causing harm or stalking Lisa in order to make him the great protector of Lisa, to have her maybe even become closer to him. And initially he had even told his parents that this George person was threatening her and they related that to authorities and at one point had us actually looking at whether or not there was another person involved in this. And ultimately, we came to, to through the investigation the conclusion that George knew him, but he had nothing to do with the killing of Lisa Zaring.
0: So after they discuss this dream, Lisa, I guess, is upset about the dream. She calls her roommate, Lauren, says, we should call the cops. And I'll read a little bit about the confession from that. After we finished talking about the dream, she called her roommate, Lauren, told her about the dream involving George, wanted to know from Lauren if she should call the cops. She told me, Lauren told her not to call the police, but I thought she should. So she called the police. She talked to the dispatcher. Then I talked to the dispatcher. He said the detectives won't be in until 8 and to call back then. All right. So at some point they call the cops about this dream. They do.
1: They do. They actually make notifications of police about that. And the police do, I believe, get involved with her. But at this point, there was nothing that they could confirm about a George, uh, who was involved with either threats or harassing, uh, uh Lisa Ziering.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. So after they call the cops, I'll just continue to read here. We both took a bath together. I got out first, dried myself off and got dressed and made a pot of coffee. She was still in the tub, adding water to it. She only stayed in the tub a couple more minutes. She got out, dried off, went into the bedroom. At this point, my dream started coming back to me and voices were telling me to kill her. I went into the kitchen and got a knife out of the kitchen drawer, which is located next to the sink. Then I went back into the bedroom. When I went back into the bedroom, Lisa was standing up putting her bra on. I put my left hand around her mouth and stabbed her in the chest with my right hand. Then I stabbed her in the neck. Then I stabbed her again in the chest. I laid her down on the floor, took the towel she was drying herself off with, laid it over her. I left it over her for about five minutes. Then I took it and put it in the garbage under the sink in the kitchen. I called Lauren, who was Lisa's roommate, and told her that Lisa was dead, but I didn't tell her who killed her. But I did tell her that this was TJ, Thomas Junta. After I got off the phone, I changed the shirt I was wearing, a red shirt with the name Bunting on the back. I don't remember what I did with it. Right after I killed her, I wrote a note on a yellow piece of paper and put it on top of her. I don't remember what it said. Do you remember what the note said?
1: The note said, TJ, I want I did to Lisa was just a warning. Guess who?
0: So he writes this note basically saying it's a warning. Back to the confession. The voices were telling me to do it. I took the knife into the kitchen, I rinsed it off, I dried it, and put the knife back in the kitchen drawer. Then I called the police and told them that I came back and my girlfriend was murdered. So
1: that was the statement that he gave to the police once he turned himself in.
0: Got it. So it seems like he called the police saying, trying to pretend like he didn't do it. But then it was pretty obvious that he had.
1: Initially, yes, he was deceptive with the police. Uh, He was indicating that there was some other person, this George person who was threatening or harassing Lisa. Mm -hmm. He indicated that he found this note, you know, TJ, which was addressed to him. Uh, Want I did to Lisa was just a warning, guess who? Mm -hmm. So he was doing things that were attempting to shift the blame towards someone else and not focus on him. However, the detectives were monitoring him. And before the statement was taken, they looked on the monitor, and he was being videotaped. Mm -hmm. And when he was being videotaped, they could see that he was licking his fingers and rubbing his pants as if to trying to get out something that was on his pants. And ultimately, we seized those pants and sent him to the FBI laboratory in Quantico, Mm -hmm. and came back with the result that the blood of Lisa Zering was on those pants. So he was doing things that were trying to shift the blame away from him, Mm -hmm. and yet what he was doing with the pants indicated that he was clearly trying to avoid him being charged with this offense.
0: Right, and I think there's other things in his confession that show that as well. How he cleaned off the knife, he put it back into the drawer.
1: He took off his shirt.
0: Right, he was trying to discard evidence in some way. So he was trying to hide what he had done.
1: Which ultimately was what I used in the trial in order to show that he was not legally insane. So those sort of factors came out during the course of the trial.
0: Real quick, why was the FBI involved?
1: Well, first of all, there was no such thing in 1985 as DNA. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So what we did was to get blood type or blood enzymes, which were consistent with either a victim or someone else that uh, we wanted to establish that it was their blood. And at the time, the FBI was the best in the world at doing this. So this was the type of case where we sent it to the FBI to have their agents take a look at it, and eventually an agent did testify at trial.
0: Wow. Okay. So, let's get into when you become involved in the case and the steps you took to prepare for trial.
1: Well, you know, I learned from the last case, Joseph Taylor, that it was important that I get involved right away. So when I got assigned this case, it was fairly quickly during the investigation. So I was able to actually go to the crime scene and go to the autopsy and do all of those things so I could visualize what this case was all about from the outset. And it was important, I think, because not only, for example, that I could talked to the jury when we showed them the videotape of the crime scene. But the fact that I was there, I could point out to the jury various aspects of the case that related to the actions taken by Thomas Junta, which we eventually advocated for a purposeful or knowing murder.
0: How do you prepare for an insanity plea okay. trial?
1: Well, insanity is an affirmative defense, which means that the defense has to come forward and say that we're going to use this defense in order to excuse the defendant's conduct. And so, what the state has to do is initially prove, beyond a reasonable doubt, that there is some type of homicide that occurred. And the defense then comes forward in their case and presents you know, psychiatric testimony, which would establish that the defense exists, that the McNaughton rule is what the rule is in New Jersey, mm-hmm. where a defendant who does not understand the nature and quality of his act or does not understand the difference between right and wrong, cannot be convicted of a crime. And so they would take a psychiatrist and they would have a psychiatrist interview the defendant. And the psychiatrist would then issue a report which would be made available to the state. And then we would hire a psychiatrist to review the report of the defense psychiatrist but also prepare a report themselves in order to rebut the insanity defense. So in that case, there's an extra layer of trial, which is the state's case, the defense case, and then the rebuttal case, where the state would put on their psychiatrist to testify that the defense of insanity did not exist in this case.
0: So I guess what I'm kind of curious or want to know is, I mean he has all these mental health issues. He's schizophrenic. He has a long history of in and out of these facilities. I mean, isn't he a little insane?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, listen, this, as I I said at the outset, this is a, a legitimate insanity defense case because here you're dealing with a defendant who has a very, very long record of psychiatric treatment. And so it was a challenge in order to, Not only establish the facts of the case, but to bring out facts of the case, which showed, number one, he understood the nature and quality of his actions. And number two, he knew the difference between right and wrong. That he knew, and we established that through his statement, that he knew that he was stabbing Mm -hmm. someone. Mm -hmm. He knew that the result of that stabbing would cause the death of someone and therefore the argument was for the state that he understood the nature and quality of his act, that he was stabbing someone and that someone would die, and he understood the difference between right and wrong, Mm -hmm. that it was wrong to do it, and therefore the insanity defense was not an appropriate defense in this case, even though he had this long psychiatric history.
0: Got it. Okay. So let's get into the trial. What witnesses did you bring to the table?
1: Well, you know, you first you establish a list of witnesses of who you're going to call, and
0: Ghostbusters. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> who are
1: you going to call? And um, I called, you know, the original detectives who were involved in the investigation. I called representatives from the Pathways program to describe this program and why he was in this program. I also called, as I mentioned, a blood expert who was from the FBI. And I also called, you know, the medical examiner who testified as to the nature of the wounds that killed her. And she was stabbed four times. Two of them were fatal injuries to the chest. The medical examiner testified that it took her 10 to 12 minutes to die during the course of the assault. And he also testified that there were three wounds on one of her hands and 14 wounds on another of her hands which indicated to the medical examiner that these were defensive wounds, that she was actually trying to ward off the attack of Thomas Junta, that she was fighting for her life. And then I followed up with the last witness, who was Detective Philip George, who actually took the statement from Thomas Junta. Mm -hmm. So what I did is I laid the groundwork for all of the evidence that would come in and then tied it to what he said to show that some of what he said fit, but some of it did not fit. And the main part that did not fit, at least as far as I was concerned, was the fact that he was claiming this insanity defense, that he knew what he was doing. And in particular, in his statement, it said that at one point the knife started to slip in his hand. And so he had to reach down on the knife to get a better grip to stab her. And ultimately, that was a key point to show he deliberately took action to cause her
0: death. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's one thing if he had done it and, you know, he doesn't remember it or he, you know, is kind of just in this state of not realizing what had happened and not realizing what he had done, but to actually have those memories and then clean off the knife and put it back in the kitchen drawer and and take off your bloody t-shirt and and wipe away the blood that's staining your pants or trying to conceal it in a certain way. I mean, I think, you know, then that shows that that he knew what he was doing.
1: Exactly. And that was the point that we were trying to make. And then, but now we had to face the defense. Mm -hmm. And, you know, quite frankly, it was a very good defense because The first witness that the defense called was the defendant Thomas Junta's mother, Mm -hmm. who made a very compelling witness, who testified about her long battle with his psychiatric history and all of the steps that she took during his 22 years to try to help him from a very early age to the different schools that he went to. But she also outlined the fact that during the course of his treatment that he was prone to violent outbursts and that when he was faced with stressful situations that he could act out in inappropriate manners and you know got to the point where she ultimately had him leave the house in August of 1984 and have him be on his own and within 4 or 5 days of him leaving her house he was back at Marlboro Psychiatric Hospital mm-hmm. So she quite frankly said that he was a person who throughout his life demonstrated that he had issues and quite frankly she was convinced that he was insane. And, and another point that she testified, which I think you know, was particularly compelling, was the fact that she had argued with Marlborough Psychiatric Hospital about releasing her son to this treatment facility at the Country Club Apartments. She did not believe, and she also had other treatment facilities recommend that he needed a structured environment. And the place that he was going to was not that structured. It was really uh, essentially having you know a talk with a counselor once a week, and other than that, you were on your own. And she did not feel that he could be on his own. And if he was on his own, then something bad would happen.
0: Right. I mean, I think for somebody who had the severe mental illness issues he had, it seemed like he needed to be in an environment where there was more supervision. And I think, you know, today there's a lot more things in place for people like him. And I think we know a lot more about schizophrenia than we did back then. And I mean, it's, you know, hard to say the outcome could have been different if there had been more programs for him to be in but at the same time you know i think that the system a little bit failed him
1: the argument of, of his mother was that that was a main part of what had happened here in this case
0: how was she just as a witness in general
1: she was a very good witness i mean she was a mother who cared about her son you know that obviously was, you know, something the jury was listening to. And it also set the stage for now the the expert testimony, the psychiatrist. Dr. John Motley was an excellent witness as well. Mm-hmm. And he had a long history to work with in this case. And he had to combat Marlborough's psychiatric view of, of Thomas Junta, which he took a much stronger position than them and actually criticized them in their assessment and And at one point said he didn't think that they had done what they should have done in this case. And it honestly
0: sounds like they're a hot mess. Like I don't really know how you feel about their facility, but it doesn't sound like they have a good standing history.
1: Well, obviously in this case, you know there was failures all around, and you know Dr. Motley pointed out that they should have been more aware or more keen of these stressful situations that could trigger a violent outburst in an individual, particularly Thomas Junta. So now it was up to the state to try to rebut Dr. Motley's testimony. And we had retained Dr. Stephen Simring, who was from the New Jersey Office of Medical and Dentistry in in Newark. And at the time, he was known to be a very good psychiatrist. And he went on to become, after this case and many other cases after this, to be one of the preeminent forensic psychiatrists in the state of New Jersey and even the country. So he's a very reputable psychiatrist who is now testifying for the state of New Jersey. And he came to the conclusion that the, although he had schizophrenic tendency, he wasn't a true schizophrenic. And he did suffer from intermittent personality disorder, and he did suffer from other issues. But those issues basically were triggers for his violent outbursts. And he can control those violent outbursts if he did certain things. But in this case, and he gave the opinion that he did not believe that Thomas Junta fit the McNaughton defense. That he understood what he was doing, and he understood what he was doing was wrong, and therefore the defense should not apply, and if the defense not apply, then you should consider these charges and, and decide whether or not to convict them of the charges. And so it ultimately boiled down to a battle of the experts uh, between the state's psychiatrist, Dr. Stephen Simmering.
0: Battle of the experts. <laughs> yes,
1: and so now the jury had to decide. And so we gave our summations in the case. Jim Canarni, ironically, I tried my first criminal trial with, Mm-hmm. Was the defense attorney, did an excellent job, gave a great summation talking about Thomas Junta's psychiatric history and the difference between right and wrong and all of the problems that he had in his life, which led up to this very tragic circumstance. And I outlined the facts in the case, in that, you know, if you're insane, do you lie? And Thomas Junta lied more than once. Mm-hmm. He lied to the police about what happened. He was deceptive when he tried to hide the clothes. He was deceptive when he tried to wash the knife. He was deceptive when he tried to blame it on someone else. And...
0: Poor George.
1: And all of this led to my conclusion and my advocacy that if you're telling all those lies, obviously you know the difference between right and wrong. And he obviously understood the nature and quality of that because he said it in his statement that he stabbed her and watched her die. And so then, at the end of summations, the jury was charged, charged on the various counts. They also had the lesser include counts of aggravated manslaughter and manslaughter, and it went to the jury.
0: Okay, so what did the jury decide?
1: Well, it was not an easy task for the jury. The jury was out two days, over 10 hours of deliberation over two days, and they came back with a verdict of guilty of aggravated manslaughter, which in my view, again, was a compromise verdict. Mm -hmm. That they believed that this was a troubled young man, and they decided there was enough evidence there not to convict him of murder, but they weren't going to let him go. They were going to hold him accountable for what he did. And so they convicted him of aggravated manslaughter, which exposed him to 20 years imprisonment and 10 years before he would be eligible for parole.
0: Okay, and what did he ultimately serve? And
1: He ultimately was sentenced to 20 years in New Jersey State Prison with 10 years of parole ineligibility. So he was scheduled to serve 10 years before he would even be considered for parole. But the defense uh, took an appeal, of his conviction. And at the time in New Jersey there was a new case called State versus Robert Brakeiron, which introduced the defense of diminished capacity, which was not uh, an insanity defense, mm-hmm. but really attacked the mental element of the crime. And the argument was that the diminished capacity defense applied to murder but did not apply to aggravated manslaughter. And the argument was before the appellate division and the appellate division determined that uh, even though the diminished capacity of defense was not asserted in the state of New Jersey versus Thomas Junta, that when you have this mental disease or defect, that it would apply both to a murder conviction and or to an aggravated manslaughter conviction. So the appellate division uh, reversed his conviction and sent it back uh, for trial in the uh, Monmouth County Prosecutor's Office.
0: So what do you mean they sent it back?
1: They sent it back uh, and reversed the conviction, meaning that he was entitled to a new trial.
0: And what happened? Uh,
1: we resolved the case. We did not try the case. Um, I believe that he did serve some time mm-hmm. in jail. I think we had a component of him getting mental treatment mm-hmm. as well, but we resolved the case short of trying it again.
0: Yeah, because, I mean, I, I sort of do agree with that because... He was severely mentally ill, and although that doesn't make it right for you to take somebody's life, at the same time, it's clear that he needed some mental help.
1: Yeah, Uh, obviously without question, that this individual suffered from some serious mental issues, and even though he was held accountable initially and subsequently for what he did, there also was a need for him to receive treatment, and that component was uh, added to this resolution of the case.
0: Well, I hope he got the help he needed, and although I don't really know if there's any upside to this case.
1: (laughs) Well, I think that, uh, no, I think that uh, it's a sad case. Mm -hmm. It's a sad case, a difficult case.
0: I think what's so sad about this case is that it involves two individuals, young individuals, who presumably have a long life to live, and yes, they both have some mental health issues, and yes, they, you know, come from backgrounds where they're sort of in and out of facilities and and just trying to get on their feet and trying to live a happy life, and it's just a really sad outcome. You can only hope that if, you know, if, if something like this were to happen today, it just wouldn't happen today. You know, with all the tools that we now have and everything we now know about mental illness, that hopefully that something like this can be prevented. I think, I
1: think we've come a long way. You know, we've gotten away from the state hospital system here in New Jersey. Um, I think we have a, a more comprehensive ability to uh, address these issues. Uh, and I think that, um, you know, we've come a long way since this particular case. So, you know, you're right, right. I think that, uh, if there is any positive side, we've, we've learned from these cases that we need to do more on the mental health side, uh, with individuals who are suffering from, uh, problems related to their mental health.
0: Absolutely. That's okay. it. Okay. All right. Well, thanks for taking us on this ride of the insanity defense case Uh, i think it was really interesting it it
1: was it was a very interesting case and it still uh, resonates with me today
0: cool all right well thank you so much for listening to this episode on thomas junta and we're going to be publishing episodes every friday so uh hopefully we can take your mind off of the craziness going on in the world for like 20 to 30 minutes by talking about murder and whatnot Although I just probably brought you back into it by mentioning it. <laughs>
1: yeah, you did. But we can do it, right? We
0: can do it. Um, for future episodes, we're going to be talking about my dad's cases, but we're also going to be bringing in some experts of people that he's worked with and who have some fascinating cases. I really want to get like a medical examiner on the podcast. I think that'd be super cool. So we're going to try to do that for you all. And uh, any current event cases that popped up, past famous cases we might discuss, uh, any cool cases that seem to be happening in the world we'll discuss and and we'll try to get a little bit of of variety here on the podcast so thank you for listening and we'll see you next friday i love you Ryan. i love you too dad